Hi, you're listening to Track Changes, the podcast of Postlight, a digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. My name is Paul Ford, and I am the co-founder of Postlight, and I am joined by the other co-founder. Rich Ziotti. Hello. Hi, Paul. Hey. Rich, you used to build websites before you were a big-time co-founder at a digital product studio. I, by build, if you mean Microsoft front page, sure, yes, I sure. have built websites. What was the Adobe the one? Oh, Dreamweaver. Yeah, I, I wove a lot of dreams. Now, uh, <laughs> this is actually a lie, everybody. We, we shouldn't mock these things. I think some of them are still around. They're probably clients. And uh, <laughs> uh, we still do build websites. We just don't get to build them as much as we used to. But no. we're still in the code a lot. And Tell me about Postlight. <laughs> I will. Postlight is a company that builds websites, web apps, mobile apps, mobile web apps, all those things. And we built the platforms that power them. So there are three things that go into the modern web, Rich. Talk to me. HTML, which nobody talks about anymore, but they used to. We used to talk about it all the time. Yeah. JavaScript, which has become a giant, insane monstrosity that everyone is trying to wrestle and control. And which seems to have swallowed HTML. It swallowed the universe. It swallowed the world of programming. We're all just trying to live with JavaScript at this point. Yeah. And then there's a separate episode. A third part, a third major part. There's lots of lots and lots of things that go into the modern web stack. That's CSS for cascading style sheets. It's soothing. It the is. name is soothing. They've been around since I think 1996 or so. They've been around for yeah. a while. Early mm-hmm. web technology that yep. now makes things sing and dance and does all sorts of stuff. Right. And there are a few people, not as many as you'd expect. There are a few, given how prevalent it is, there are a few true experts around CSS. It's a handful. And the, the person we've got today, I've seen his name bounced around for probably 10 years now, almost. Yeah, this is one of the people who is as fully aware and one of the most of this part of the web and one of the sort of most experienced practitioners and communicators Around CSS, and his name is Eric Meyer. Eric, thank you for coming on Track Changes. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, you've got HTML on one side, JavaScript on the other, and in the middle there's this thing called CSS, Cascading Style Sheets. What does it actually do? Cascading Style Sheets are the clothes you put on the body of your website, which is a little, I just had an in-joke there for the technical people in the room. Oh, because the, the body tag. Right. Oh, boy. Oh. Aye, aye, aye. Aye, exactly. But, like, way back in the day, if you wanted to, like, your presentation was all in your HTML markup. And so if you wanted to change the way the page looked, you had to literally restructure the page. Font like, size. Right. Well, it, so it was kind of like saying, I want to change my look. I need to go for surgery. Mm-hmm. CSS is... I'd like to change my look. I will buy a new outfit. I will put on clothes, but I will not have to like literally structurally change myself. So tell me just like one or two things you can do with CSS for people who aren't familiar with it. Man, I mean, one or two hundred things. Well, sure. But I mean, I'll give, I'll give an example, then you give one. One would be like, you, there are standard sizes for a headline and standard fonts for a headline built into your browser. CSS lets you say, make the headline really big, make it red, make it uh, a totally different font, and maybe even like make it spin in and rotate. That's, that's happened over the last few years. Yeah. Those are things you can do. You can, you can take a thing and move it to one side so the, the rest of the text flows around it. I mean, you can lay out the whole page. We've got new specifications coming online just now to literally take all the pieces of your page and lay them out 
almost however you want. We're, we're not quite to perfection, but we're, we're getting there. Um, yeah, there, there's ways of uh, setting up stuff in the background. So like all those cool parallax scrolling websites that you see where everything scrolls at a different rate. And as you scroll past an ad, it, it looks like you there's this window that's sort of like looking on a, on a thing off in the distance. That's all CSS. Um, and, you know, I think it's worth emphasizing to people like HTML is fairly straightforward to learn, especially as you're just getting started. And right. there's lots of little edge cases. And really, the same is true of CSS. There's an enormous body of lore and knowledge, but you can get the very basics down in a couple hours. And, yeah. and then there's the deep craft. Well, and then there's the, the deep craft. And then on the other side is JavaScript, which you can get started. But the reality, programming is, is hard, and it's hard to do meaningful work quickly. Yeah, um, and so th these are real enabling technologies. Yeah, and they're designed on purpose to be as author friendly as possible. Got it. Doesn't mean they're always completely transparent and intuitive, but one of the core directives is to make them author friendly, make them human readable. So when you're writing CSS, you don't have to like know assembly language or whatever. It's it's things like element name, color red, which turns the element red. Strangely enough, right or you know, this font size or this font face to, to set the typography. And one of the interesting things with uh, CSS Grid is actually one of these new layout languages. For a long time, CSS layout was really hard because we were using stuff that was never designed for layout to do layout. And it was like incredibly fragile and difficult to work with until you sort of internalized the way everything worked. You know, it was like it was like trying to build a pattern out of uh, various colored uh, bars of soap floating in a bathtub. Mm -hmm. um, and Grid is actually really—it's almost astonishingly straightforward. And it, it's interesting. People who know how to lay out CSS, sort of the what we will now start to think of as the old way, with all the all the weirdness and the hacks. When you show them Grid, they're like, "Okay, that's cool, but the, where's the rest of it?" Like, sure. <laughs> where's the stuff you're not showing me? The difficult thing, and you're just like, no, it's it's actually this simple. That is literally all that I did. And and some people, I, I've 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 been in training with people where they've said, wait, you're gonna have to do that again because I I have to have missed something. <laughs> okay, we'll do it again. So, right, that that's always been that drive to get as close to, you know, literally being able to sit someone down and within the day have them be able to do a basic layout and have the the typeface look nice and the, and the colors and the backgrounds look good. And, you know, they're not going to get all of CSS in a day. There's too much of it. But hopefully they don't have to spend weeks and weeks just trying to figure out one component of it because, like layout used to be, because that the layout component was taking things that were never meant for layout and, and forcing them to that purpose because there was just nothing better. And your job as a, as a writer and speaker is to really bring people into this world and give them some tools for thinking about and understanding what they're, what they're using when they use CSS. Yeah. That, I mean, that's what I try. That's what I try to do in, in, um, you know, books and articles and tweets for that matter. I mean, occasionally I'll come across a really cool bit of CSS that does this amazing thing. It's like, this will literally fit in a tweet. I'm just going to, I'm going to put it out there. Tell us what you do all day as a CSS. I think guru is fair. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, labels so, are... All right, let's retract that. As a practitioner of the web who is a teacher of CSS, what do you do all day? So, um, actually, a lot of what I do during the day is managing a company. Uh, 
which runs Anaventa Part, which is a web design development UX kind of conference series that I co-founded with Jeffrey Zeldman. But when it comes to the CSS, a surprising amount of what I do uh, when I'm working with CSS is building test pages to figure out if I understand the specifications I'm reading, which I've been doing this long enough now uh, that most of the time I do, but not always. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll read through the specification or I'll, I'll read an article describing something and I'll say, I totally get this. I will create an example for myself. And I create the example and it, it fails utterly. And so I have to go back and figure out what I got wrong. So I, I think for our audience, it'd be really good if you explain kind of what a specification is and where it comes from. Yeah, so the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, generate specifications. It's, it's most of what they generate, at least from, from my perspective. They have a variety of working groups. So there's a CSS working group. There's, a, there's an HTML working group. There's you know, this working group. They have a lot of working groups now. So the CSS working group will produce a specification, which is a document uh, that says, you know, here are the things that this specification is intended to address. Here are the pieces of CSS that, that are defined here and what they're supposed to do. So color is an easy one. Most people grasp color. So there's a color and background specification, and one of the th one part of it says, okay, if you want to set the color of text, here is a property called color, and it takes these kinds of values. And then later on it says, you know, if you want to set a background on a piece of a web page, here's all the ways that you can do that. And so, I mean, specifications are really written for the people who create web browsers. I mean, that's at the core who they're for. And who gets to be on the working group? Um, so if your organization is a W3C member, which is not cheap, but if, you know, if you're Adobe or Microsoft or Google or you know, one of those guys, you can be a W3C member. And then you can send representatives to uh, any working group you like. So if, if you're Apple and you're creating web browsers, you can send people to the CSS working group or the HTML working group or whatever. Now, working groups can also invite experts. I actually was an, a, an official invited expert with the CSS working group for a number of years. I gave it up when I, I just didn't have time to keep up with it. But um, there are independent folks who can be members of the working group and sort of be part of the discussions as to what should the specification do or not do. Um, so it's sort of like the corporate equivalent of academia. Kind of, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll go with that. Eric, it sound, this is Rich. How are you? Hey. It sounds to me like one of the goals of the working group is to have an independent body that allows or actually enforces the idea that the various browsers and the various implementations stay in sync. Otherwise, everybody would sort of run in their own, their own direction. That's a lovely ideal. Right. And in some working groups, that is the case. Uh, there are other working groups where that has not been the case, unfortunately. They just can't agree. Yeah, or it becomes a, a technology that implementers aren't interested in implementing, or you know, there are various reasons why a working group can sort of fall apart. Well, there was a great, both Rich and I were XML heads in the 2000s, uh -huh. and there's a huge swath of, a swath of standards that really just never found a place, like X-Link, things yeah. like that, where it's like they're useful, they show up, but you know, like it was a, it was a way to kind of like smarten up linking between documents and nodes. Yeah. And it seemed like it was a great abstract idea, but nobody got too motivated to really implement it. Yeah. Well, a lot of it was 
just in fantasy world and it, not grounded in reality. I mean, and, a lot of it came out of old hypertext thinking and sort of old systems that people are like, well, you got to, it, it's not yeah. a real hypertext system unless it does this. Now, there was a, a pretty dark time as if you were a web developer in, gosh, I don't know when I'm going to peg this, probably late 1990s into early 2000s when if you wanted to create a, a website that worked pretty much consistently across browsers, it was a job. You had to sometimes fork off and say, oh, I'm in browser X, so I have to do it this way. It was a mess. The web development was a lot of work just to get the thing to look right in the various places. Well, I think Eric was a, a light in the darkness at that moment. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Eric, if you could talk about sort of the reaction to all that misalignment. Yeah. So late 90s, I think, is where this really got to be a problem. And, and you're right. It, it used to be websites you would go to you know, website.com or whatever, and the homepage would be effectively a splash page that would say, hi, thanks for being here. Please click on the icon of the web browser you're actually using because we built this site twice, once for Internet Explorer and once for Netscape Navigator because they're so incompatible that we literally – I mean, yes, you could create a website that worked in all browsers, but it was a very limited experience and, like, you know, so, yeah. It was a job because you had to do the job twice in a lot of cases. And so the Web Standards Project, which I did not start, I was, I was involved in early, but um, a number of people like Jeffrey Seldman, um, Tim Bray, Glenn Davis from Project Cool, um, I know Jeffrey Veen was in there, and, and other people that I'm forgetting, and I, I will be embarrassed later when I realize who I, I didn't mention. But anyway, they sort of got together and said, this is ludicrous. This is like trying to film TV shows where you have to film the show once for Panasonic TVs and once for Sony TVs. And this is stupid, and we need to push the browser makers to actually become compatible instead of completely incompatible. So it was a community effort, uh, which pretty much everyone outside of it in the rest of the community said would never work. But uh, it did. It took a while, but it did. And I think to a large extent that's because there were people inside the actual browser teams at Netscape or Internet Explorer who agreed with Web Standards Project. They did not want their browser to be completely incompatible with other web browsers. And so they were able to use this external group to say, hey, we're getting bad PR. Like internally, they could say, we're getting Mm -hmm. bad PR and let's do better. And working groups did become a place where implementers could come together and work things out rather than never talk to each other and just do whatever the hell they felt like. There was a moral component, too, which is that a lot of the conversation at that point, if I remember, was about accessibility and about making pages that different systems could read rather than just for visual display in a web browser. So if you had limited vision, you could it could work with a screen reader, screen reader right. and, and things like that. And I'm, I'm curious to know, Eric, what's your perspective on the accessibility discussion today, right? Like, that was a big deal. And it kind of moved forward, and now I feel that we're in a world of single-page web apps that aren't as focused on on being available to all as they used to be. Yeah, I think that's fair. And um, some of it has to do with uh, what you mentioned at the top of the podcast, which, you know, JavaScript eating the world. JavaScript-driven websites and web apps don't have to be inaccessible, but it's really easy to make them inaccessible if you're not thinking about it. And unfortunately, it's something that a lot of people don't think about either because they were never told that they needed to or because at some point they decided, oh, that that's too hard. I'm, I'm too busy trying to 
you know, ship early, ship often, and I don't want to think about that. The, you know, those are those are edge cases. I'm, I'm designing for the 90%, not the 10%, you know, which is, I mean, that's great for the 90%, but it's really not great for the 10%. And it strikes me as a strangely self-limiting move. It's sort of like saying, I'm, I'm fine with only reaching, you know, some percentage of the people I could reach rather than reaching as many people as possible with whatever I'm creating. And it, yeah, I mean, you're right. Accessibility kind of goes through these cycles. It was a it was a big push back then, and then everyone seemed to get it, and now we've cycled back to there needs to be a big push. Fortunately, toolmakers are usually more aware, so it's not as bad as it could be. But mm-hmm. JavaScript frameworks tend not to, in my experience, tend not to put any emphasis on this at all. And so, people who just use a JavaScript framework to to spool up something really quickly, a lot of times. Like, there's no built-in guidepost to say, hey, you should be thinking about this. It seems to come much later, right? I mean, I, you know, I don't even know yeah. what the status of React accessibility is out of the box. Right. I'm pretty sure that things like React and Node accessibility, when those projects got off the ground, were close to non-existent. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of work to bring that back in in, in some projects. I, I don't want to name specific names because it's, honestly not an area that I'm super familiar with. But, I mean, this is sort of the tragedy, is that there's this perception that, okay, well, we'll we'll spin something up quickly, and then we'll do the work to add the accessibility later. When the web, by its fundamental nature, is completely accessible, you actually have to work to make it inaccessible. And the last 20 to 25 years of web development effort seems to have been one like long extended recurring story of trying to mess up the fundamental accessibility of the web in as many ways as we can think of. Don't you think that that, that ever since JavaScript showed up, that paradox has been kind of inherent, right? Where it's, it's a tremendously effective, easy to publish document delivery platform. And I feel that like it, the accessibility story landed there and that people are still making roughly, like if you use WordPress, you're reaching an audience that's, you know, getting roughly accessible web pages, I think, for the most part. And if you're using, you know, a pretty standard common template. And then it, it splits off into this world of sort of st- very stateful applications that have much less to do with documents. They might display documents from time to time. I think that's the, that's the rub, right? It's become an app delivery platform. It's software delivery, and the priority hasn't been on access in the same way that it was around documents. Yeah, and I don't... I'm I'm not comfortable just blaming JavaScript because Flash did the same thing. Right, right. Before JavaScript was really usable for this sort of stuff. But <laughs> Well, JavaScript can be accessible. It's not it's the it really right. is it's a tool. Yes. It's a tool and the culture is less about delivering meaning and knowledge and more about the specific kind of experience. So I think like we're working that out as a culture. It's probably going to be another 25 years. Sadly, yes. Because yes, you can you can use JavaScript to, to deliver stuff that, that is completely accessible, but most of the time, unfortunately, people don't. They don't they don't think about this. The the JavaScript ends up being a way to just spam out a bunch of class divs or spans or something, and then CSS is used to take that completely undifferentiated soup of stuff and make it look pretty, rather than actually thinking about hey, what kind of markup structure should this be represented by? Because once the JavaScript constructs it into a document, it, you know, even if you've got a quote-unquote web app, it's still a document. It's still HTML and CSS and JavaScript. There's still a document tree that represents all these pieces. It's just 
there are a lot of just dancing to, now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm trying not to get too technical, but it's you can do it in a way. Well, someone who's used Microsoft Word a fair amount probably knows there's a little style bar where you can say this is a heading and this is a paragraph, right? Or you can just literally type all your text and then you can drag select stuff and directly change the font size and the bold facing, right? So that everything is a paragraph. It's just you happen to have formatted different paragraphs different ways. Or you can do it structurally so that headings are headings and so on, right? Things like that. Sure. You can basically do that with HTML. You can have everything be the same thing and, and you just like slapped presentation on it and there's no way to differentiate on the back end what the difference is, or you can structure them. And you can do the same thing if you're using JavaScript to construct your pages. You can use those, those two uh, approaches. Um, and a lot of people use the, the undifferentiated soup approach rather than the, the structural approach. So we jumped around a bit. We did. We talked about late 90s where things were a mess and then how this movement got everything, not everything, but everybody lined up against standards uh, that took hold. Talk a little bit about the last 10 years and what you've seen happen, what's gotten better, what's gotten worse. So in terms of standards, pretty much everything's gotten better. And I don't just mean new standards. I mean standards compatibility. So today we have situations where one browser will support a CSS thing and another browser doesn't for a while. Or you have two browsers that are implementing the same thing, sort of what's called behind a flag, sort of doing it in a, in a private preview way. Um, and they're not quite the same, but the thing is then everyone realizes that they're not the same, and then the you know the Chrome team and the Firefox team or the Chrome team and the Safari team, whoever it is, they, they work to be consistent with each other, and they go back to the working group and say, hey, we did it this way, they did it this way. Both interpretations of the specification are reasonable, but we need to know which one is correct so we know who has to fix what they're doing. So there's just implicit cooperation. Yeah, there's, there, there really is this cooperation. I liken it to, you know, word processors don't compete on what file format they store the document in, generally. Like, they can all read each other's document formats. They compete on making it easy to do a thing or, mm -hmm. you know, what features they offer, right? And browsers are kind of the same. It's the, hey, we've got these technologies and we have these things that you can do. Um, and, you know, our JavaScript engine is this fast as compared to everybody else's, or our CSS is this capable as compared to everybody else's. But wh where we've done something that other people do, they're all consistent. It's like if, you, if you've been doing this, I've actually been doing this for more than 20 years now. If you came from that era, everything that's, that's going on now, like the little inconsistencies are just like the most minor, they seem like the most minor things. Right. Right. Nobody has to do the click here if you're using Chrome, click here if you're using Safari. Right. Like they, they don't have to, and almost nobody does. About the only place you ever see that is if somebody spools up like a really cutting-edge experimental site. You know, it's like this browser just got web VR, you know, OpenGL support, and nobody else has it yet, but I totally want to do this, so I'm going to put up a, the site, and then if for other browsers that haven't done OpenGL yet, it's just going to say, hey, you you need an OpenGL supporting our web 3D or a web VR, whatever you're, you've created, web browser. But they're not, they're not like looking at the browser and saying, oh, this is a browser I don't recognize, you go away. It just says, hey, you need this technology. And if you don't have it, then you'll get this little warning page. And if you do have it, then come right in and enjoy this thing that I built. So, yeah, that's been the biggest change, I think. Um, and it's been one of the biggest stories of, of the last 10 years is that 
all these implementers working effectively together. You know, they don't share code necessarily, but they work together to figure out like how should we be doing this stuff. Um, you know, and when we conflict, who's right, who's wrong, and let's get that codified into the specifications. The downside has been the stuff that we talked about with the JavaScript, right? JavaScript engines got so fast, so quickly. It used to be the JavaScript was a joke for many reasons, one of which was that if you tried to do stuff in, in a browser in JavaScript, it would take forever for it to finish. And now, like, people have used JavaScript to completely recreate old-school first-person shooter 3D games just in the web browser. It's incredible. Right? Right. The speed of, at which JavaScript engines have advanced like way outstrips CPU speeds or anything else. Just so much effort has been poured into that. And so that has lured a lot of people into, oh, well, I can create this whole thing I'm doing out of JavaScript, and I don't have to think about the markup, even though they really should, because not thinking about the markup means that there's some set of users out there who are not getting the information. And that's, that's kind of, it's falling into the flash trap. Right? That was what Flash was. Flash was, there's this thing that promises that it will be exactly the same for everybody. But if you don't have it, or we didn't go to the effort of thinking about accessibility, then you're, the door is shut. There's no way to get at this stuff. Um, and the web was designed from its outset to be ubiquitous. It, the web prizes ubiquity over consistency. Right? It, may not, it may not look the same in every situation, but you get the content, you get the information in a form that you can understand. And Flash, and in some cases, JavaScript development go completely the other way. They, they try to prize consistency over ubiquity. Has the, uh, the growth of mobile as a platform been good or bad for the world of cascading style sheets? I, I think it's been good. There have been a number of things that have come out of what mobile needs that desktop never really did. Media queries is a good example, and the whole responsive web design movement that came out of that so tell tell us, what are media queries and, and actually what is responsive web design? So a media query is a way of saying in your, in your CSS, in your style sheets, for these kinds of display situations, use these styles. And then for these other ones, use these styles. So it, at a very basic level, this is not exactly how you would do this technically, but at a basic level, it's the, here's my mobile style sheet and here is my desktop style sheet. Usually media queries are, are more fine-grained than that, but we'll go with that for now. So that the cool you know, website that you have with the, the header across the top and the content column and the sidebar and everything on a desktop machine becomes a single column page on a mobile app with you know, a little bit bigger text so that people can read it while they're on the subway or, or the bus or whatever. So depending on which platform I'm on, right. I get different CSS that makes the same HTML content look appropriate to the device that I'm looking at or holding in my right. hand. Right, and it's not exactly the platform you're on, it's the the sort of display environment you have. Mm, okay. Because when we say, depending on the kind of platform you have, that sounds like here's an Android style sheet, here's an iPhone style sheet, and here's a, you know, a, this style, and it's not that, it's the, if you have a smaller screen in vertical mode, then do these kinds of styles, and if you have a smaller screen in horizontal mode, you can do these slightly different styles, and then if it's a tablet size screen. It doesn't matter who made the tablet. It's just these are the kinds of styles we're going to give you because we can do different things in a tablet format than we can in a, in a phone format. And then if it's desktop, we can do size 
kind of deal. We can do these other things. And I mean, you could ramp it up to the point of, and if you're putting this up on a TV that has, you know, a zillion pixels, then we can do this other thing. So yes, that's what a media query is. And responsive or web printing. design is printing as well, like paper. Yes, although printing gets very little consideration these days. Sadly, I spent many, many a day thinking about the print style sheet, yeah. but nobody, yeah. nobody, I haven't heard print style sheets mentioned in about 15 years. It's just not priority. Who's printing web pages these days? Who's printing these days? It's true. Right. And, and so we don't, we don't really think about it. But responsive web design is the practice of thinking about all of those display environments and actually writing the style sheets and the media queries to, to do that. Before responsive web design, we didn't really do that. People were actually starting to go towards the click here for mobile, click here for desktop, which was completely a throwback to click here for Internet Explorer, click here for Netscape Navigator. And then responsive web design was, wait, we can take the same content rather than having a completely separate website for mobile and a separate website for desktop. We can have the same content sent to everybody and just the way it's presented changes based on the parameters of their current environment. From, from what we've seen, the term and the concept around responsive has leapt over to the, to the business side. Yeah. We get people who are non-technical, and I think this has been the case for a few years now, say, hey, you know, we need a new X and we need to make sure it's responsive. Like that's, they've gone ahead and read that article yep. uh, to understand the value of it and I to think understand. They, they also had the custom app built. You know, eight yeah. years ago, and they, a lot of people have stepped in shit. And then four years, four years later, you're like, "What do we do with this atrocity?" Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and and they might not have even read the article so much as seen the TV commercial where some you know insurance or uh, I think I think I remember insurance was like our new responsive website, right? <laughs> Did they and say so that on TV? If you're on the business side and you hear see one of your competitors bragging about their new responsive website, you're going to go into the office the next day and say, "Why do we have one of those? Why don't we have one of those?" We need a responsive also, thing. Insurance needs something, man. They got, they got to get out there. Yeah. You know? Well, the, the word responsive has, it almost like you're saying this is going to be a much more empathetic experience mm-hmm. than, <laughs> yeah. than you're used to. Uh, without knowing the definition, it sort of resonates in a weird way. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a brilliant piece of labeling. Uh, Ethan Marcotte is actually the one who, who applied that label. And it's kind of like Ajax, trademarked that. if you, you remember said, Ajax back in the day. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right? Ajax is kind of gone now, it, right? We, well, yeah. I mean, most of you these still hear it. most of these progressive web apps and and web apps, you know, quote unquote web apps that are they're actually using Ajax. We just don't ever call it that anymore. Yeah. But the thing about Ajax was those technologies have been lying around were were usable for like three or four years before Jesse James Garrett coined the term Ajax. Yeah, right. inner HTML. I remember. Right. And it was yeah. a way to X, sort of HTML, what? HTTP request or. Yeah, it was no. Oh, it was a specific silliness. Microsoft call mm-hmm. to um, yeah. the with XML in it. It was like right. yeah. a, a remote XML request yeah. or something like that. Right, but then like Netscape was supporting it. You you could use it. Right, but but that was the that was the X in Ajax. Right, it, it didn't have a term. That's right. That resonated, and then Jesse James Garrett said, wrote, right. wrote his article. Was like we call it Ajax, and everyone was like, we must do Ajax, and it was kind of the same with Ethan. It wasn't this. It wasn't that same uh, build up. Um, yeah. But there were those of us who were in CSS had been talking about media queries for uh, a year or so, maybe. And then Ethan was just, he published his article and he said, responsive web design. And you're right. I mean, that word, it just so, it, it resonates. You say to yourself, it didn't oh, sound right. technical. It didn't sound. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. He should have trademarked it. Yeah. You know, the CrossFit guy. Right. He doesn't do anything. He just, you pay, I think, like six grand. And 
you can use the term CrossFit because he's taken control of the term. I hope to, I, I'm imagining he does CrossFit. He's actually, he's not in great shape. Mm. I've seen him. So here's the funny thing. The, all you get is the right to use the name. So you just go out He's got 70 lawyers. And you go out and buy a big tire. You can do whatever you want. He's really, he's really not policing it. He doesn't have a logo or anything. But if you want to use the name CrossFit and you don't want to be sued, you give him six grand. It's, it's, like, it's like a racket. So wait, could we open up CrossFit ice cream? Yeah, I think that's going to fall outside the, 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 the domain he's going after. But Ethan should have done this. Yeah. Ethan should have done CrossFit. <laughs> see, here, he should have done responsive and no, hit a little no. TM next Put to it. Put it into the world. Put it into I, the I'm, world. B- I'm being slightly silly, but it was a stroke of brilliance. It was a stroke of brilliance. And here's the thing. Ethan, like many of us in the field, is not, I mean, is somebody who the only reason that he would have trademarked it was to make sure nobody could do that thing that you just described. Right. Right. He only would have yeah. done it defensively. And like stuff I've created and, you know, you know, many other people um, have created. And we just like literally, like when I created a CSS reset, which we don't really probably want to get into the technical details, but it's a, it's a way of sort of leveling the playing field across browsers when you're starting out with your CSS. I explicitly had to put it, like give it a public domain license because people would rate me and ask, hey, what are the licensing terms on this? I was like, what are you talking about licensing terms? It's like, right. it's like two dozen lines of CSS. This is not, <laughs> this is not a thing I, that anyone should be able to patent. That's no, great. but the boss will tell you. And no, oh, I, I, no, I've met Ethan a few times, and I, I would say predatory businessman or not. It's not, not in his two. mindset. Not really where I <laughs> no. put him. I want to come up with one. Pr- I want to come up with like compassionate nav bar. Yeah, or something. And, and then trademark it. And I don't want to forget the trademark. I just want. I just want to write that article. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and everybody pauses. CrossFit style sheets. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we've talked about. We sort of drew a little timeline. It's a big timeline uh, since the web kind of got it's quarter century. That's depressing and exciting all at once. I, I mean, it's <laughs> it's not crazy that in a quarter century and in uh, like a new platform emerged that billions of people have access to and that more and more people are having access. I mean, it's... Yeah, no doubt. It's pretty good. It's actually... You know, what's great is that it it got... We got the house in order within a few years. Like, people had the foresight to see, okay, this is going in a bad way. There are standards out there, but, you know, commercial motivations has everybody sort of hiding and doing their own thing. And if we sync it up, it's going to be that much more valuable to everyone. And that happened five, six years out rather than... Otherwise, it would have just—they would have gotten even more entrenched. A diplomatic, sort of inst- a diplomatic instinct took over, and I, very we, early, given the early players like Microsoft, which was yeah. not a diplomatic company by anybody's definition. That's right. That's um, right. That was a very positive outcome. It's easy to remember because back in the moment, and even now, you're just like, "Woof, boy!" You know, yeah. Everybody was fighting for their for their share, but sooner or later, a kind of easing took place and people were like this really should be for everybody and you could see that the advancement that happened after that we positioned ourselves so that we could continue to grow and advance and make things more and more sophisticated if the web had been locked down we would not be as far along as we are now i think that's really obvious we could get into a debate about what's happened in terms of the app ecosystems and multiple stores by stores i mean places to shop for apps and multiple platforms is almost a step back in a way, but that's us just getting sentimental about the web. Yeah, let's not talk. Let's not do that. I'm going to get misty. We've got we've got Eric on the line here. Let's not let's Eric, not waste our opportunity. Where are things going? We, we've gotten to here. The web's incredibly sophisticated at this point. Where are things headed, and what's in danger? 
Let me ask both of those at the same time. Wow. That is a good question. <laughs> um, I mean, where we're going, at least from a standards perspective, I, I expect more of the same that we've seen in the last several years, which is figuring out what what developers want, what designers want, you know, what authors want, and delivering more of that in a universally compatible way. As an example, people are getting super excited about augmented reality recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I would expect a W3C augmented reality effort Interesting. to, you know, I, I'm, they probably got one going already, but one that takes the best practices and, and codifies them. See, the W3C, when it started out, had to be by its nature, let's try to guess what people want and then write down how to do that. And in a lot of ways, it's shifted more towards let's see what people want. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, float out a trial specification with some trial implementations, see if that works out, and if it doesn't, adjust. And then eventually get to the point of write down what people did, Mm -hmm. which is more what industry groups like the IEEE does. It's more of a write down what people did rather than write down what people want to do. That's true. The web is no longer as prescriptive in the standards as much as descriptive of overall practice. Yeah. And that's very different than the way it used to be. Yeah, I mean, like I say, it, when, when it started out, it had to be that way because hardly anyone was using it. So the working groups had to guess. Like, if they just wrote down what people did, there was hardly anything to write down. <laughs> right, so, sure. So it shifted, and there's, there's a little bit of prescriptiveness, but it's not nearly the way it used to be. I'm trying to think of augmented reality CSS, and all I can think is that you'll be able to add padding to a room. Cool. <laughs> Make I, your house a little bit bigger. Yeah, and yeah. I, don't, I don't know that... CSS will necessarily be a part of the augmented reality thing. It might be. Um, it might be used to describe the little modals that pop up mm-hmm. in your augmented reality. But then again, may, maybe not. I don't. I don't know. It'll sort of depend on what the people who are working in augmented reality sort of discover that they need. Like, do they need a way to create themes for their the little panels that pop up? And if so, maybe style sheets are the easiest way to to make that happen. And if not, then not. I want to close with a question. Tell me a little bit about the, since you, you were on the working group, you were on a working group for a few years. I was. Tell me about the after parties. Well, I mean, the ones you can remember, the ones you weren't at, right? <laughs> no, honestly, Just wild, right? Honestly, I'll tell you, from my memory of the working groups is that we would, we would sit in the conference room at, at our host organization like all day, mm-hmm. talking about whatever was being discussed at that point. Mm-hmm. And then we would all go to dinner where we would keep talking about it, <laughs> yeah. but, but less formally. <laughs> and sort of like make fun of like, this is a point where we can sort of rib each other for the, like, you said that thing. and Right, that attribute. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and then the next, like, then the next day, we'd all get up and go back into the conference room. Discuss it, <laughs> that, and it, that sounds accurate. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like you said, it's sort of academics for business. And it, uh, there's got to be some scandal in there. Oh, you don't have to share that with I us. Mean, there was a CSS uh, specification at one point where it gave example, uh, I think, font names, and it said things like rattlesnake, and apparently that was that referred to an event that I was not present for. Oh um, boy! There was apparently rattlesnake, or maybe rattlesnake meat involved. I'm not sure. Ooh, hidden messages. <laughs> and- By the way, uh, real quick, are there hidden? Is there hidden stuff that's just not documented anywhere that the browser people put in? 
By hidden, do you mean not in the specification? Not defined anywhere, but will cause the whole page to shake? Um, or it'll play like a, I don't know. Easter eggs. A Moody Blues song? If you, if you I mean, drop it. Google does that. If you, if you Google the word askew... Yeah, people, you know, if no one starts people listening to this yeah. haven't tried that, if you literally go to Google.com and type askew, then it will, you'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> but that that's more on the programmer side. I I can't think of anything in a specification that the only Easter eggs in specifications are like in jokes in the examples, where you'll like see this sentence Got and wonder it. what the heck that was about, and it turns out it was yeah. from an after party or whatever. Right. Well, it's probably for the best. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. This was really interesting to cool. see the guts of this stuff as it all came together. And always a pleasure to nerd out with people about specifications. It's great. Thank you. Well, you know, Rich, it is one of the three pillars of the web. No way around it. It is. It's also one of the accessible things, which I think we... Like, it's one of the things that's easy to learn, which I, I, I think the way the modern web is going, people don't think about it and talk about CSS the way they used to. Yeah, it's considered dated in some circles. Yeah, but it's important to remember that most of the people coming up are going like, oh, wow, I can format and style this headline. This is power. Yeah. Also, you still got to use it. You do. Well, you do. Even it's... though you've chopped it up and put every bit of the, the, the code inside of other code, uh, you're still using it. So. CSS styles are what make all your things look like they look. Yes. Facebook or whatever. Yes. Thank you to Eric Meyer. Uh, we better get back to work. We better. So if people want to reach us, they can send us an email, hello at postlight.com. Mm-hmm. They've been listening to Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlight at Digital Product Studio, 101 Fifth Avenue. Who are you across the table? In New York City. I'm Rich Ciotti, co-founder of Postlight. I'm Paul Ford, the other co-founder of Postlight. Hello at postlight.com if you need anything. Give us a good rating on iTunes if you are so in the mood, and we'll talk to you next week. Take care. Bye. Bye.